So I have a question for you young people, and by that I mean school-age people and not those of you who may be fooling yourselves. How do you behave or what do you do when your teacher leaves the classroom for a few minutes? Or if you're homeschooled, your mom and your dad leave you on your own, do you keep at your work as if the teacher was still there, or do you act differently? Now maybe I should ask this, since I know all of you are all are good kids, how do the other students act when the teacher leaves the room? I can remember vividly what we did when I was in school, when the teacher would say, I have to walk down to the office for a few minutes, don't talk. And don't get out of your seats. As soon as the teacher left, guess what we did? We started talking. We got out of our seats. Worse than that, the spitballs started flying. Do y'all still do spitballs? One day, one kid got up and started going through all the drawers in the teacher's desk. I thought, we are going to be in so much trouble when she gets back. We didn't respect our teacher very much. We acted how we wanted to act instead of how we were supposed to act in the way which kept order, kept us safe, and helped us learn. We've got to remember that living in this world, you and I, it's very much like living in a classroom. As believers in Christ, we have much to learn about Him. Would you agree with that? How to trust Him more, how to love Him more how to know more of His ways, how to become His devoted disciples. We need to learn how to best live our lives so that they bring glory to God. That's the purpose of our lives. And so you and I must live this life knowing that God never leaves the room. We are never out of His presence. We live our lives quorum Deo, which is just the Latin phrase for Before the face of God. You and I live our lives quorum Deo. Before the face of God. How shall we live our lives then? Knowing that God is always watching. Well, you and I should live our lives so that we always please our Father. And that's what we're going to talk about as we return again this week to 1 Peter So I'll ask you to take your Bibles now and turn to the first letter of Peter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear, read together, the Word of the living God. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, this is the Word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, 
such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, bless this passage, these verses, the truth of them once again. To our hearts, we pray through the power of your Spirit, Father, how we look forward to what you do in our lives when your Word meets with your Spirit. Change us, transform us, cause us to love and honor you more, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we return this morning once again to this section of verses, 13 through 21, that contain three specific instructions for you and for me. As we sojourn or live our lives of exile here on this earth, and I will remind you that these instructions are intended to bless our lives because they help us live our lives as God designed them to be lived. These instructions instructions help us to become devoted disciples of Christ, the very thing that you and I are called to be. When we live according to these instructions, the frustration of our life decreases, the fruitfulness of our life increases. When we live according to these instructions, we have joy in the Lord and with the Lord. And so the first instruction at which we looked in verse 13 was this, set your hope fully on grace. That's the instruction, set your hope on grace. The second command at which we looked over the course of three weeks is this, you shall be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. This morning, we come to this third command, and you'll find that in verse 17, if you'll look there with me. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear this instruction on the surface, I have conflicting emotions. I say to myself, but I thought when faith in Christ began, fear ended. So you and I are conditioned to believe that faith and fear are antithetical, that one cannot exist where the other one is. If we are afraid, we must not have faith, and if we have faith, then we should not be afraid. After all, On the night that Jesus was born, did the angel not say what? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Romans chapter 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 2 Timothy 1. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love. And so we're going to have to listen 
carefully to the Spirit of God and to the whole counsel of Scripture to understand what this fear is. So let's begin to unpack this fear to which Peter calls us. I am not going to begin with a definition of this fear. I'm going to save that to the end. Instead, I'm going to begin with two characteristics, two characteristics of this fear. And the reason is so that whatever this definition of fear turns out to be, whether you and I like it or not, we will be convinced that we must have this fear and we must live in this fear. So the first characteristic of the fear is this. It must be lifelong. Look again at the second part of verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Throughout your exile. This is extreme. This is superlative. Because as we've already seen our exile lasts until we're home in heaven. So that means that throughout the entirety of our lives, we must have this fear. It's not a sometimes fear. It isn't a part-time fear. It isn't a fear from which we should seek to get past. It's a full-time fear, and I'll go even further than that. It's a fear that we take right along to heaven with us. Listen to what Jesus said to the Apostle John when he was on the island of Patmos. He showed him a vision of the worship of heaven. And this is what John wrote. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Did you hear that? This is the song of the Lamb. That means this is the song of Jesus. Song in heaven. Who will not fear the name of the Lord? And so this fear, whatever it is, it's for all of this life. And it's for the life that follows. The second characteristic. It's a fear whose source is a relationship with God. This fear flows from relationship. Look again in verse 17. If you call on him as father, conduct yourself with fear. Now, Peter isn't suggesting that you might not call him father. Now, when this conditional is used in the Greek like this, it indicates the reality of a long-standing presence. Or practice. So it's something that happens a lot. And so if can be translated since. Since you call on him as father. Since by the grace of God, the spirit of God has worked in you. Since the spirit of God has shown you the wonder of Christ and your need for him. Since he breathed life into your dead soul and made you alive in Christ. You have the privilege of calling God Father. We confessed this morning, earlier in worship, what that means, and I hope they weren't just words. I hope 
You meant it. If you are in a father-child relationship with God, you must have this fear. And then Peter goes on to qualify that relationship further by writing that this relationship we have with God is not only as father, but also as judge. Again in verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, conduct yourself with fear. It's really important in understanding what this fear is to think about what Peter did not write in this verse. Peter did not write, If you call on him as father who loves you tenderly. Other scripture tells us the truth of that, but here Peter writes, If you call on him as father who judges you impartially. Your father, my father, is also our judge. Again, it seems to us when we become believers in Christ that we should or get to let go of that judge part because we have been justified. Again, if we go to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it defines justification like this. It's an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. In other words, we've already been to God's courtroom. We've already stood before him as judge, and when we professed faith in Christ, the gavel in God's hand fell, and he proclaimed that we are not guilty Release the prisoner, forever not guilty, forever free. Is that good news? But God remains a judge. Your judge and my judge. God's wrath against sin never calms. It never cools because sin continues to destroy. God, with whom you are in this loving relationship, is never going to shake hands with your sin, with my sin. They are not going to become friends just because of faith in Christ. Though He will pardon all of our sins, He will never overlook our sin. He will never wink at our sin. He will never indulge our sin with a pat on the head like a kindly old grandfather. No. Your sin and my sin is still grievous to God. And so the gospel will stop being amazing to us every day if we ever lose sight of what our sin deserves from a righteous judge. If he isn't a judge, that love with which he so loved the world that he sent his only son doesn't make any sense. If God were not a judge, the cross of Christ would have been a senseless tragedy instead of an awe-inspiring victory. If God were not a righteous judge, then loving Father would have no meaning to us. God never ceases to be judge. The only thing that changes is the verdict that He passes when we come 
to faith in Christ. When Peter was writing this, the Holy Spirit brought both images to his mind, Father and Judge. And the fear that we are to have comes from seeing God as both. God is a holy, righteous judge. We should be afraid to sin. But when we do sin, we have a loving Heavenly Father. Is that good news? R.C. Sproul said, We are saved by God from God. We are saved by God from God. By His love and grace and mercy, He saves us from His very own wrath. All this means by necessity that this fear, whatever it is, cannot be had or known by the world or by those who don't know Christ or honor Christ as Lord. And so then, we ask this question, what does God intend to do with this fear that's in us and through those He names as His children, you and me? Of what are we to be afraid? Well, before we can answer those questions, we better go ahead and define what this fear is. We've already seen what this fear is not. It is not that very legitimate and rightly felt fear of unforgiven sin before a holy God. Peter is not commanding us here to live our lives cowering and shaking in uncertainty in the corner. I'm afraid God will not receive me. I'm afraid God will not forgive me. No, that's settled. That kind of fear has passed for us. Colossians 3, listen. If then you have been raised, or again, since you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do not fear. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Are we good now on what this fear is not? Are we good with that? Let's move on to what it is. The kind of fear that Peter commands through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is awe and reverence and the fear of offending God. The fear about which Peter writes is awe of God, reverence for God, and fear of ever offending God or displeasing our Father. I've quoted Bishop Robert Layton before, I hate to always give the little bio, but just if you haven't heard it, I will. He's that 17th century Scottish pastor and scholar, and he wrote probably the most used and the most quoted commentary on 1 Peter. He writes there, The fear here recommended is, out of question, a holy self-suspicion. And fear of offending God. This fear may not only consist along with a short hope of salvation and faith and love and spiritual joy, but this fear is their inseparable companion. 
The more a Christian believes and loves and rejoices in the love of God, certainly the more unwilling he is to displease him. This kind of fear reminds us that God never leaves the room. This fear causes us to be suspicious of ourselves and how we might act if we thought no one was watching. God is never not watching our lives. And because He's our loving Heavenly Father, we don't want to do anything that displeases Him. And that's why this fear must be constantly at our side. That's why this fear becomes a grace to us. I hate to de-elevate it in this way, but it's the thought that came to my mind. This fear becomes like a sheepdog alongside us because we, we are the sheep, right? The sheepdog barks and nips at the sheep, not out of anger, but for their own good. To keep the sheep in line, to keep the sheep safe. And so this fear, which is a grace, must accompany us always. Keeping us from displeasing God because we love Him, because we reverence Him, and we want to be near Him. We don't want to be away from Him. We don't want to be out in the wasteland. The place where sin always leads us. Charles Spurgeon writes, Unregenerate fear drives us from God as it should. But gracious fear drives us to Him. The fear wrought by grace draws us to God. You don't fear God because He's angry. We fear God because He's gracious. He's gracious to you and me. Father, let me not offend your grace. Let me not abuse your grace. Let me not take your grace for granted. Let me not ignore your grace. Fill me with that grace through your means of grace so that I might live a life of grace where I do not offend you, my gracious Lord. Well, why have this fear? Two reasons, and then we're done. The first is that this fear causes us to value life. This fear causes us to value life because we have this awe and reverence for our Father We don't want to waste. We don't want to squander the life that He's given to us, redeemed and renewed for us and handed back to us, saying, here's life, saved, rescued, restored. Now use it well. Because God is my loving Heavenly Father and my righteous Judge, I am afraid to misuse my life. Because you fear God, are you afraid to waste or to misuse your life? This kind of fear brings us daily into the presence of our Father. How, Lord, can I use my redeemed life for your glory? And you might want to do this. You might want to pray Psalm 139. Every day, for you, God, created my inmost being. You 
knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's all of life. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them were I to count them. They would, be outnum- they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Still with you. Our Father never leaves the room. Our lives always lived before His faith, His face. He's never not watching. He's written every single day that each one of us has on this earth. And so because we reverence Him, because we're in awe of Him, we ought to inquire of Him every day, Lord, How is it that I should spend the life you've granted me this day? This is conducting ourselves with fear throughout our exile every day of it. The second reason for this fear, I think it is powerfully evangelistic. You and I have ground to make up. Ground that we lost. COVID exposed us. Did it not? Showed us in many cases to be just as fearful as the world that does not know Christ. As fearful as those who don't have faith. We cowered in the same way. We did the very thing that Jesus said not to do. I tell you, my friends, he says, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. We feared what could kill the body as if we did not know the one who gives life to our bodies, both now and for all eternity. Oh, but if the world could see you and me living our lives in this kind of fear, living to please And not displease our Father. Not squandering our lives, but living them to the best of our ability. By all the grace and all the power that God gives us through His Holy Spirit, the glory of Christ. I can't think of a better demonstration of the beauty of being in the family of God. Of being in the kingdom of God. Of the attractiveness of it. Of the joy that it brings. I can't think of a more effective form of evangelism than God's people, than you and me, living every day of our lives in the fear of God. I've gone over this morning, but I want to end by reading you a part of a poem. And this poem was written by the former president of the seminary I attended, Columbia International University, the late Robertson McQuilkin. He was also a close friend of my father-in-law and a father figure for my wife. And so we got to watch 
the kind of life he lived. We, we watched him, by the grace of God, remain faithful to the vows that he had made when he married his wife. We, we watched him resign the presidency of the college and seminary to take care of her. We watched him care for her and their home, which, unbelievably enough, meant that toward the end of her life, Dr. McQuilkin would put the food in his wife's mouth and then manipulate her jaw to chew the food for her. Now, before he knew any of that was in his future, he wrote this poem. It's sundown, Lord. The shadows of my life stretch back into the dimness of the years long spent. I fear not death, for that grim foe betrays himself at last, thrusting me forever into life, life with you, unsoiled and free. But I do fear. I fear the dark specter may come too soon, or do I mean too late, that I should end before I finish, or finish but not well, that I should stain your honor, shame your name, grieve your loving heart. Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark. Of your grace, Father, I humbly ask, let me get home before dark. What a poem. What a prayer. What a goal for those who fear God to live every day with the goal that we don't stain the honor or the name of God or grieve His heart. If we fear God the way Peter instructs here, that's the goal of our lives. Lord, Lord, let me get home to You, having sought to live every day with this goal of bringing You pleasure with this life that You have given to me. Because I'm in awe of You, because I reverence you, your love, your holiness, and your grace. Let's pray. Father, we do ask, let us get home before dark. Help us to live our lives by your grace and through your power in a way that's always pleasing to you. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.